Hey everyone, it's TJ. Wanted to thank you for tuning in to episode one of this project that I'm calling Home is Behind. I meant to give a quick explanation in my intro about it. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with Tolkien's works, it's a line from a poem called A Walking Song that Tolkien wrote for the book Fellowship of the Ring. It's also more commonly known now for this version that's sung by Billy Boyd's character Pippin in the final movie of that trilogy, but I just found it fitting. I really like it. Getting started here, I debated with myself all week on how succinct I wanted to make this opening episode. Should I just jump right into the story? Uh, should I take a little bit of time at the start to explain a little bit of the significance of the Silmarillion itself? I'm a sucker for those sorts of things myself, so I'm going to include it, uh, just for those of you unfamiliar with Tolkien, and I'm going to trust it's going to help reduce, not increase, that academic air so much of Tolkien's works have gathered. Um, you see, part of why the Silmarillion is considered to be this daunting book is that it wasn't developed as a publishable book in the first place. It was literally cobbled together from notes Tolkien had made about the beginnings of this world, so it's not this strict narrative uh, that he put together with help from an editor and a publishing firm. His son published it for him posthumously. It reads much more like a history book with lots of detail than uh, it suddenly has these moments of like poetic narrative interwoven through it. Thankful for us, um, the vibe I'm going for in this project, the description of the beginnings of this world, it falls more into that poetic category before all of these large amounts of detail start taking place. Um, this poetic narrative being what's called the Ainu Lindale, or the Song of the Ainur, and then this more scholastic, we'll say, Valaquenta, or the, the account of the Valar. Now, I know just saying these titles alone is kind of like a ah, fuck, here we go kind of moment, but but stay with me, I gotcha. Um, it's not as archaic as it sounds. I'll probably lose any Tolkien purists here with this, uh, but it makes the story easier for me to understand, so I don't really care, and I'm going to present it to you the same way. Um, you see, Tolkien is somewhat infamous for his strict view of high fantasy. That is to say, it's it has to be self-contained, doesn't feature characters or allegories to our own world. And, and there's a meme I really like. Uh, it, it compares Tolkien to his friend and fellow writer, C.S. Lewis. Tolkien's just ripping into this guy for asking him if Lord of the Rings is an allegory for his service in World War One, And beneath it is Lewis, all alone, feverishly writing, and he's saying, if even one person reading this does not understand the big line is Jesus, I will set myself on fire. It's a caricature, of course, but it represents to me how Tolkien apparently viewed his works. He wanted them separate. Um, here we go with me losing scholastic points. I'm more in the camp that human beings can't really create art without their experiences bleeding into them a little bit. Um, Prefacing all that to say, Tolkien was Catholic. To me, it's a lot easier to understand his world creation if we approach it as a twist on Catholicism. So in Tolkien's mythos, it all begins with Eru, the one who the elves call Iluvatar. Now, another quick aside, Tolkien loves giving things multiple names. It's really fucking annoying. So no worries. I gotcha. I'm going to make sure that all these potentially confusing bits stay as clear as we can uh, as we continue to go on. I prefer the name Aru personally. I think it's cooler, but Iluvatar is what's used most in the text, so 
we're just going to stick with that. Now, beneath the Luvatar, they are what we are going to consider spiritual angelic beings. These are the Ainur. And Iluvatar and these Ainur, we're told, are, they live in this sort of spiritual space Iluvatar has prepared for all of them. But outside of this space, there's this great nothingness called the Void. Now, the Ainur are unique in that each of them has a unique voice, and in their unique voices is a small understanding of some part of Iluvatar's knowable character. He's still this Catholic God archetype, so there's always going to be parts of him not everyone is even going to understand, even these Ainur. Um, and I can see where this is already maybe a little lacking in some unique fantasy perspective, but Tolkien sets this apart from here in a very unique and poetic way. It's one of my favorite creation stories I've read in fantasy. Um, when he says the Ainur have unique voices, he, he means that literally. Tolkien likens them almost to orchestral instruments. So in those early days, um, we're going to call them days, even though he, you know, he technically hasn't even established time and stuff yet. But in these early days, each Ainur, is, it, they're kind of left to go get to know themselves, their, their unique instruments, figure out how they mesh with some and not with others, and how they all kind of come together. Um, and by doing so, most of them come to some greater understandings of Iluvatar just by spending time with each other. Uh, but th this wouldn't be an epic fantasy without a big bad, right? So a satanic figure is here to mess everything up, and now we have Melkor. Now, Melkor, true to the Catholic roots, pretty much being a stand-in for Satan, is the best and brightest among the Ainur. We're told his gifts, he was given a little part of every other Ainur's knowledge. To further follow that eventual pathway, it makes him envious of Iluvatar, and just an altogether turd of a being. Um, while the other Ainur in these early stages are getting to know each other, Melkor's out wandering the void in search of this special power of Iluvatar's that Tolkien calls the flame imperishable. Uh, to me, that just it signifies life and the power to create it. But Melkor, of course, can't find it because Iluvatar you know, basically is in and of himself this flame. Now, after a while of all this, Iluvatar calls all the Ainur over to himself, and he reveals to them this grand musical theme. The Ainur are all dumbfounded at how magnificent and intricate all of it is, but they can see here and there where they, you know, they can pick out their individual voices within this giant or orchestra. Um, Iluvatar then tells them to play it. Says, you know, feel free to riff on your theme a little bit, put your own ideas and personalities into it, but, but get going. And they do, and we're told it's truly magnificent, and nothing so beautiful has ever been heard before or since. And then Melkor happens. Um, now, I was thinking of how to best describe this next part and what it's like, and I think I came on something. There's, there's a great video, I think, that really captures it, and it keeps with the religious roots. So there's, there's this song called Oceans by a Christian worship group called Hillsong. To its credit, it, you know, it ebbs and flows, builds, crescendos, you know, pretty masterfully. You know, it's, it was designed to take stadiums of people and elicit the same euphoric emotional response, and it, it, you know, they did a good job of succeeding there. Um, now, this video version, it's called How to Play Oceans on the Drums 
if you want to pause now and look it up if you have the ability to do so go ahead otherwise check it out afterwards it begins with this woman standing in front of what what we can assume is her church congregation and, and she's singing oceans you know and then suddenly on this final note uh I mean, you you may as well insert the the, the sound you know the, the the disturbed you know screaming vocals because all of a sudden the drummer just just says fuck it it's my song now um and he just goes ham da, 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 just just and the song is still playing this entire time this drummer is just freaking the fuck out that drummer is melkor okay it it throws a whole bunch of the ainur off rhythm at first and then some change tempo and actually start playing along with Melkor and this just goes on and on and on for a while it's just this giant cosmic clusterfuck and then Iluvatar who's been sitting back vibing somehow this whole time he, he finally reacts he stands up but he's smiling he lifts up his left hand and this other theme starts playing and it's similar but it's different to the first one somehow and it it kind of adds some order for a little bit but you know, we're told Melkor just kind of doubles down and drowns it all out. So Luvatar stops smiling, and this time he raises his right hand, and we're told something completely new starts playing. It's gentle, it's sweet at first, and then it grows into this sorrowful depth. Tolkien says it became clear that its its beauty comes from the deep sorrow that it had within its own theme. So now we kind of have this this bastardized mix of these first two themes that's being led by Melkor and then it's like it's being fought by like the saddest Adele ballad ever uh, and Adele starts winning Melkor will throw out some super cocky effort and the Adele ballad will somehow just take those notes and add them to its own and it just makes it all the better and this battle just goes back and forth until it rises in a level of resonance that it's, it's just too much to take. And finally, Iluvatar raises both hands and brings it all to an end with this gigantic chord. And then it's quiet. And they're all just sitting there, waiting to hear what Iluvatar is going to say. And when he finally does, first and foremost, he praises the Ainur for the abilities they have. And then he even admits that Melkor is the greatest among them. But then he says that you know, while Melkor was having his own beautiful dark twisted fantasy over there, it, this is all part of Iluvatar's plan all along. And then he just kind of nopes out of there and he heads out into the void and all the Ainur scramble off after him. But once they're there, they get a vision. And in this vision, there in the middle of the void, there's, there's suddenly something. There's this mass suspended there. And in a flash, they see nearly all of its history play out. And there are things like air and earth and metals and, and water. And each Ainur can see themselves and their influence in each of these things. But the most beautiful part of all of this, this earth that Tolkien calls Arda, is that this world has inhabitants. And not one Ainur had anything to do about it. They're all from Iluvatar. And these children of Iluvatar, as they're come to be known, are elves and humans. Now with this revelation, Tolkien says many of the Ainur just, for lack of a better word, fall in love with these children. Their every desire turns to wanting the absolute best for them. And even Melkor lies to himself, convinces himself, he wants nothing more than what's best for these beings. Um, 
but in reality really he 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 sees them and he you know wants a life and wants it subservient to himself subservient to himself so the vision ends so abruptly that Tolkien says these angelic beings that haven't even realized what sight is yet they grew so accustomed to the vision so easily accustomed to the light that they suddenly realize what darkness is but then Iluvatar sends that life-giving part of himself that flame imperishable into the heart of this world and he both declares and defines it as reality and while some Ainur choose to remain with Iluvatar many of them don't uh, they have their awareness and powers bound to this new world and they begin putting all of their thought towards preparing it for the coming firstborn children of Iluvatar, the elves. Um, because by binding themselves to the reality, they realize they're now bound to its time. When they get there, there's nothing yet. They get to each physically create it now using their individual gifts for these beings. And while they're spiritual beings still, um, They've got this ability to clothe themselves, as Tolkien puts it, in a variety of forms, but given their love for the children of Iluvatar, they create forms similar to bodies, you know, just magnificently so. Um, they're almost like these godlike, you know, lowercase g for the sake of the Catholic underpinnings, but these godlike kings and queens of Arda. But Melkor being Melkor, he comes along too, and as soon as he's there, he declares himself Lord over all, and he takes this monstrous form because of secret darkness, and really, he just proceeds to be a petty little chicken shit. Uh, next episode, we'll get into it more about these these early years of creation, um, but it's really just bully at the playground type activity. You know, they'll they'll make a mountain, he'll come over and kick it over. You know, they'll they'll dig a valley, he'll come over and fill it back up. But in the end, of course, these benevolent Ainur prevail. Um, there's 14 of them. 14 of them. Um, the elves come to call them the Valar. We're left now with this, I think, pretty interesting combination mythology for Arda. It's, it's almost one where this, this physical world was created by an almost Grecian pantheon, and I, I think Greek's overrated too. I prefer Norse. It just doesn't line up as well. Uh, but this Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses, but behind them each of them is also subservient to this central all-powerful monotheistic sort of god um now at this point tolkien does now in in the valaquenta give us the names the domains the you know, what what parts of life these valar have order and control over um i'm going to list them because they're cool um but but please don't worry about comprehension here I don't remember half of these myself, unless I have them written down. Um, and if they actually feature into the story as we get going, um, I'm going to make sure to refresh your memory, okay? I got gotcha. you. Um, most important part of this process, most important part especially, going forward into the rest of the Silmarillion here is just, there's so many damn names. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge, huge cast of characters, so trust me, I got gotcha. you. If something's important, I'll remind you. Yeah, we'll... we'll keep that in mind going forward so getting into the Valar now um, there's seven kings and seven queens uh, in the notes I made I tried to, to give myself some clear indication without completely polluting the page with with scribbles um, but but most of these some of them stand alone some of them are paired with another almost like a you know a spousal sort of arrangement um, for now I'm just gonna kind of read through them tell you what they stand for and again 
coming into the rest of the story if, if they feature I'll let you know I'll remind you what they stand for um, so these Valar being the male ones the Valier being the female ones um, there's Manway who is the high king he's the one closest to a Ru um, he's not the most powerful that still belongs to Melkor but if there's a second best it's him um, his affiliation is for air for wind clouds things like that um, and going ahead into the larger Tolkien mythos um, he's also represented by eagles so well that's a little tidbit that'll come back later um, he's paired with Varda who we're told is the lady of stars then there's Ulmo uh, he's kind of your standalone water type he's a loner doesn't like coming to the company meetings um, doesn't really even like wearing clothes. Uh, that's probably why. He, he prefers to stay in his spirit form and just kind of float through the world, through the waters. Um, and our next pairing, we've got Aule. He's kind of the smith. Uh, he's the one who dealt with the earth and the metals and all the substances that make it up. Um, and as an interesting aside, Tolkien notes that Aule is actually within this Arda, probably the most like Melkor in Thoughts and Powers. And he is joined with Yavanna, who is responsible for plants. Um, this next grouping, Tolkien kind of gives at least two of them. He says they're called the Fanturi, the, the masters of spirits. They're, there's brothers. Um, technically, they have a sister, too. And Tolkien kind of leaves her out. You know, I guess it wouldn't, wouldn't be a mythology without it being a bit of a sausage fest, but here we go. Um, so the first one... In true Tolkien fashion gets a little confusing already because uh, Tolkien says hey here's these two dudes these two brothers um, this is their real names their real names are Namo and Ermo but uh, most people call them by the places where they live and that that's what we're gonna do too don't worry about it so their names are Mondos and Lorien and Mondos is the keeper of the houses of the dead He's also what Tolkien says is the doomsman. He's got this foresight. He almost knows everything that's happened and will happen. And if he needs to, he can pronounce doom, you know, doom kind of in the larger mythological concept of just knowing what's going to happen. Um, his brother is Lorien. He is master of visions and dreams. Uh, he's holds the fairest and the, the most spiritual gardens in the world. They're some of the most relaxing places to go. Um, he's kind of like, at least to me, he, he's kind of like Tolkien's version of um, Sandman. If anyone's familiar with um, Neil Gaiman's Sandman series, you know, this, this person who's responsible for visions and dreams. Now, Mandos is tied to Vaire. Uh, she's the weaver of time and history says that the halls of Mandos, these houses of the dead, are almost woven with, with tapestries that she put together telling that the history of time in, uh, within Arda. I believe her sister, no, I don't, I could, that could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure her sister now um, is this other being named Este. Uh, she represents rest and healing, sleeps by day, a little bit more gentle. And then we have, who's probably my favorite overall, um, sister to Mondos and Lorien, is Niena. Now, Niena's another loner, and she is master of grief and mourning, specifically. Uh, I think it's really cool that Tolkien takes the time to kind of give a patron saint for grief. Um, 
we're told her song is woven into the world before it even began being those early stages when they were still I knew her it was almost like she got a glimpse of what the world would be and what hardships and sadness it would face and and wove that into the themes of the world itself um you know for me a little quick personal aside um I'm 31 and my dad died less than two weeks after my 20th birthday so a lot of my life over the past decade especially those early years you know it's still been living life going ahead but there's you know there's of course this this part that gets missing there's this grief there that I, I wouldn't have otherwise had to experience so I like Nienna, um, especially because Tolkien says one thing she really does do is she teaches these beings pity um, and endurance and hope which is a really cool thing um, but again she's a she's a loner you know in this world of of Arda where we'll eventually learn there's you know like an east and a west and most of the Valar live to the west and you know she goes as far west as she can she goes all the way down to the edges of the world kind of lives over there unless she's hanging out with her brother Mondos um, now we get into the last few promise we're almost done um, now we have Tulkas. Now I'm, I'm going to say that again without Tolkien's pronunciation and without maybe some of the elongated O sounds I bring to it with, I, you know, my, my accent has a little bit of some Wisconsinese in there. Um, but this is Tulkas, T-U-L-K-A-S, not Tukas. This is not the god of ass. Um, although the way Tolkien describes him, he may as well be. Uh, Tolkien, he's this big, strong, absolute unit of a person. Uh, he gives him all these great things, like he you know, runs faster than a horse, doesn't need a, you know, doesn't need a horse, he's super strong and ruddy, his, you know, his, his only weapons are his hands. And Tulkis is... It, all these other Valar have these affinities. Tulkis is here to mess up Melkor. That's it. It's like the Valor came down and said, we see ourselves in the air and the water. And Tulkas was like, fuck Melkor. I'm coming down to fuck him up. And that's why he's here. That's it. That's the only reason he's here. He understands the assignment. So a lot of these early pages, it's it's Tulkas, you know, sitting around being bored because there's nothing to do. Um, now, he's paired with Nessa. Uh, we're told she's just as primal, but she's got more of the grace part of primal. Um you know, she's she's the dancer. She's fleet-footed. Uh, she's got this affinity for deer. So if you kind of think about the you know, the primal grace of deer, I guess she's supposed to symbolize that. Um, now, Tulkas's helper is Orome, and while Tulkas is you know focused with Melkor, Orome kind of gets the rest. He's the monster hunter. He's the lover of horses and and hounds. He's got this this like precursor to a horse's named Nahar that he rides and he goes to and from you know across the world of Arda into Middle Earth and you know just slays monsters um, and then he's paired with Vanya who is um, kind of has an affinity for flowers and and birds she's called the ever young and she's the sister of Yavanna who we, we learned early back is um, kind of goddess of plants we'll say and that gives us a close then on these 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 Valar and Valier, and of course Melkor was once one of them, but they don't count him among them anymore. He's fallen from grace. He's this different thing. Now, one more very brief aside. I know this is this is a lot. Um, beneath the Valar, 
it's also important to note we also have these subspirits called Mayar. Um, or Mayar, probably, really, is the pronunciation. Um, they're these lesser spirits. They're subservient to the Valar. Most of them serve a Valar or two. Uh, Tolkien kind of says very little is known, but but they're there. Um, a few of them end up being important to this tale. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm probably not even going to bother reading them just because th- they'll be important later if they're important later. Um, but just keep in mind a couple names. One of them is Melian. Um, she served uh, Vana, you know, the, the goddess of flowers, and both and, and Este, um, who is kind of this goddess of healing. She's going to feature very heavily into the story coming ahead. Um, and then I'm just going to go ahead and, and mention now to my favorite Maiar, um, this dude named Oloran, who is told to be the wisest among all the Maiar. Uh, he's a servant of Nienna and spends most of his time between there and Lorien and I think that's probably why he's considered the wisest, because he, he gets to serve the coolest. Um, and then one more note, too. Uh, Melkor, of course, kind of gets his own Maiar. Like in those early days of the music, there were some that attuned themselves to his tune. Um, he, most of them come to become known as, you know, to the elves, the Valarakar. Uh, we're going to come to know them as Balrogs, these giant servants of shadow and flame and they'll come into play later too um, but they're Maiar they're these lesser spirits in like a physical form um, but Melkor also has this chief servant named Sauron who is also going to play very heavily into the tale um, not necessarily so much in the Silmarillion but as the Tolkien mythos continues on plays in very heavily um, and I've completely forgotten to point out too at this point. Um, so Melkor gets a big name change now. He's Melkor as far as his identity as an Ainur is concerned. But here within Arda, um, as essentially this fallen Valar, he, he becomes known as Morgoth, or an enemy of the world. So very similar naming at least. You know, we're used to Melkor, now it's Morgoth. You know, he's this big bad. Um, Hey, that, that, ladies and gents, is the Ainulindale and the Valaquenta, the Song of the Ainur, the Account of the Valar. Um, this wouldn't be Tolkien without detail, lot, lots of detail. So, while I'm not sure how much I'm going to condense for the next episode, uh, please just know this is like, a little warning, this is like the first of two prologues, uh, if we're looking at this like a narrative. Um, as a history, it's not, but I hope you enjoyed this uh, as much as I enjoyed making it. I'm someone who spends an inordinate amount of time in his own head. Um, I plan a lot and I do very little. So this is a lot of this is just me trying to do a little. Uh, I'm excited to have something to actually pour some creative energies into. Um, hoping to spend the week reading and note taking and drafting and then sometime on the weekend when I can grab a moment recording. I got two little kids. I don't know if you know, I got a two-year-old who likes to kick in her crib and she of course woke up right when I decided to start recording this morning. So uh, if you hear any thumping or weird background noise, that's her. I'm sitting pretty much almost directly below her room in the basement right now. So um, also I'm, I'm going to assume at this point, um, I'm probably not going to stop assuming at this point that if you're listening, you're one of my quote unquote real life friends, um, <clears throat> real life friends uh, or, uh, or Instagram land friends um, tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if somehow you're not, 
um, somehow you're just tuning in. Uh, feel free to check out my Instagram. That's at what T John likes. That's John J O N, uh, no H in my John. Um, what T John likes. Uh, I'm planning to make a post to go along with each episode. So if you want to, there's a place to comment, discuss it. Give me feedback. Give me all of the feedback. This is the absolute first time I've ever done anything beyond written word. Uh, you know, do, done a lot of writing in my life. I'm much more naturally a writer than somebody speaking at the end. Um, first time behind a mic for the most part, too. So let me know how it turns out. Um, if something's weird, something I need to change. Um, also, for the podcasting platform, I, I also had to create an email address. So technically, there's that, too. Um, true to form, I think, uh, let me think here now. Pretty sure it's home is behind pod. No, home is behind podcast. So home is behind pod at gmail.com pod being P O D. Uh, please feel free. Send me any thoughts you got there too. Um, so until next time, have a great week. Stay cozy this holiday season. Um, I'm hoping to keep this up all through the winter. I'm, I'm in Northeast Ohio near Cleveland. Uh, winter pretty much sets in in November and may not, may not let up until May. Uh, it's the longest part of the year up here. So I wanted to have something fun and cozy to do during these cold months. Um, and yeah, I'll see y'all next time where home is behind and the world is ahead. <laughs>